0: At the age of five, poet Stephanie Strickland and her sister received a book from their grandmother that included a poem by John Ferrar called Serious Omission. I know that there are dragons, St. George's, Jason's too, and many modern dragons with scales of green and blue. But though I've been there many times and carefully looked through, I cannot find a dragon in the cages at the zoo. The poem stayed with Strickland. What is the serious omission she asks, to not be able to find that dragon, to fail to discriminate the hugely many implicate orders of life? These questions, not to mention the dragons themselves, drive Strickland's new book of poems, Dragon Logic. Her fiercely intelligent and morally acute work captures e-dragons and sea dragons, as well as a beast she calls Hidden Dragon of Unstable Ruin. The poems even offer dragon maps that take, quote, catastrophic forms and safe paths, in quote, finding and figuring their way through the physical, mechanical, virtual, mythical, chimerical, and hypothetical environments we now inhabit. And if you find yourself wondering just what a dragon is, that's the right question. Dragons are mythical and abstract, explains Strickland. Mythical embodiments of abstract power from the snake in Eden to devouring sea monsters to the latest special FX apocalyptic creation from Hollywood. The dragon hunt that matters for me is tracking the beast as it slips dizzyingly from real to configurational electronically generated space. Always aware that where we live in either case is the belly of the beast. Stephanie Strickland. Thank you for being on the new books network.
1: Eric, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to
0: you. Well, I am looking forward to sharing your work with our listeners. I think it's some of the most fascinating and intellectually engaging poetry out there. Um, And you are the author of a new book, Dragon Logic, that has just come out, and I'm looking very forward to talking to that. But before we get there... um, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit of of your background as a poet and as an artist. Um, I think, you know, someone coming that has a sense of what poetry is from, say, the New Yorker magazine or something is going to be pleasantly surprised by what they find in your poetry. Um, So could you give us a little sense of of your aesthetic and kind of where where you come from as a poet?
1: Well, you know, I come from two places. I, though I started out writing print poetry, and one of the early books of my print poetry was about a, a book called The Red Virgin, which is about Simone Weil, and Simone Weil, or Vile as they sometimes spell her name, W-E-I-L, has continued to be important over a number of books of mine. But I, there came this point where I just wanted to go beyond the print page, and that was pretty early on in the development of what was called hypertext or electronic work that was about 1995 and about that time I had written another book called true north and in particular that book I really envisioned it in a three-dimensional way And I wanted to try to put it into an electronic form. And that was one of the first ones that I did. And since then, I've written about an equal number of books of print poetry and of made works, collaborative works of electronic poetry in a different number of different kinds of software. And I think that the latest book is kind of a conversation between those two Practices. I, um, I I never wanted to give up one for the other. I love both.
0: Well, y- one of the things I love about your work is that you are one of the innovators of, of electronic literature, um, and you've written I think one of the the clearest explanations of what it is. Could you tell us a little bit about what it means to be born digital? <laughs>
1: Well, there is an essay on the Poetry Foundation uh, website, but I know people say to me, it's, so what is e-literature? And it is not literature that you could print out. I mean, it's not just that it appears online. It makes use of capabilities that are only possible in software. And, I, you know, I have a little list here. I, someone asked me about this. It was a like, Yale student that was interviewing me, and she was saying, how is it achieving things that print can't? And so some of the things I said to her was that it can include animation and kinetic elements and three-dimensional topologies, and it can be structured like a game. It can be structured like an instrument on which many different tunes can be played. It can be approached in a nonlinear fashion. It can be site-specific. Uh, you can uh, activate it at different physical places in the world with mobile devices devices. It can include mapping or another large database of elements that can be queried. It can exist in a form that never repeats itself. It can contain an effectively infinite number of elements. And I think this business about being unable to be contained is a very important part about it. It can exploit reading strategies native to the computer user, such as sampling and multimedia. It can be triggered by bodily gestures. It can act as hacktivist sabotage. It can operate in virtual spaces like Second Life. It's performative in many ways. And there's even more, well, more, um, (laughs) say, recondite, you might say. Uh, I would say, because I'm getting very interested in quantum mechanics these days, that you can cultivate what I would call a quantum habit of attention which is to track something, something that lands, but had no trajectory in the meantime. In many ways, that's what we do when we're we're online. So all of those things actually don't happen on the page.
0: How is that not the most fascinating moment in literary history since the printing press?
1: (laughs) Well, it's, it's a very fascinating moment, but on the other hand, as with every upgrade, you relinquish as much as you gain. And so, I think that for me, that's that's where I'm always kind of living. It's like, what did I just give up by doing that? And what um, one thing you give up is the specific, non-negotiable, unique, anecdotal instance from which I think we need to learn, because at this point. In a world of digital humanities and so on, everything is about being measured and numbered and thus interconvertible, do you know? It mm-hmm. can be substituted, right? And there's a place where that's just not true, or at least in my values, where that's not true. And so, how we're going to preserve that other sense of value uh, is important to me, too.
0: Well, and so that takes you back to print as well as forward into electronic literature.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think you capture a unique anecdote in print. It better than you do online. The online thing, um, see, is part of its life for many, many reasons. You have no control over the temporality of it. It's mediated. You have no idea where it's going to be seen. is this work going to be on a laptop is it going to be on a phone is it going to be on a huge screen in a gallery um what kind of mediation is going to affect the reception that's something you don't have control over we in print we still have a lot of control over that the conventions of print you know continue to exist and it's pretty much the way you put it out right i mean whether it's an artist book or a print book or whatever um also, the it, it, things can be changed at the point of changing the coding as well as this point of the display. You give it out there in online work, often often very specifically in some of the work that I've done, for instance, with Nick Montfort, We put out the code and encourage people to use it to make their own versions of it. It's a stage for collaborative work. It's, it's a stage for uh, collaborative strategizing where people can game together or comment on each other's work. That doesn't quite happen, you know, with a book of print poetry at all in the same way. Mm-hmm.
0: I think uh, it might be worth noting at this point that that you and Nick Monford have created a new subgenre of poetry, which is uh, code commentary poetry.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, it, again, this was kind of um, this was we made a generator, a poetic generator, which generates. 225 trillion stanzas, which is beyond what anyone can read by any means in a human lifetime. And it's made with the language of uh, Emily Dickinson's poems and. the language of Moby Dick, and it's very simple i mean it just consists of seven basic templates and some rules that we made and um but still if, if you don't know how to code there's a lot about it that you won't understand and we wanted we used something called a gloss in code where often people who are coders put you know the glosses in just regular english and it's usually a direction to another coder, you know, you might want to do this, so this is why this is in there, now and so forth. And we sort of repurposed the gloss when we wrote a very extensive gloss on the code for, um, C and Spar Between. So our paper in Digital Humanities Quarterly called Cut to Fits Tools Spun Course, which is a line from the, from the generator, it actually uh, lays that. it actually runs because it is code, but many 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 interpolations that explain what the code is doing here for people who aren't coders and why we did this and what we thought we were doing with this so we hope to um, make it easier for um, poetry readers english majors or whatever to read a work of code and see how it's put together and for coders to see what um, a computational poetic seems like to us how what we think what we consider literary computing to be as opposed to
0: I love how it's it's a means of, in a very concrete way, bridging these two domains that, you know, in a lot of the culture and even in academia are separate, uh, but are very much wed together in your work.
1: Yeah, that's the thing, yeah, they are so separate, you know, <laughs> and yet, um, and the thing is that they require so many different kinds of competences, because in the digital work, you know, you need programmers, you need people who do graphics, you know, people who do sound, and, you know, there's um, a lot, because of the fungibility of all the media, where it all just comes down to electronic pulses, right, we can translate the acoustic into the visual, and we can translate anything into anything, right, but the masters of those legacy arts remain masters of those legacy arts, and there are some people who are very good at all of those and make very interesting work, but much of the work is collaborative and needs to be done by large, you know, by teams of people who have been there specialized um, skills and that's an art in itself, especially when people are all divided up in all kinds of funny departments. Um, how do you how do you assemble people so that they can readily make this kind of work? You know, not every computer science um, department is open to the art making school. You know, on the other side of town, or whatever. You know what
0: I mean? Yes, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and, uh, having tried to do some collaborations myself, and I think you not only do you face the the very concrete difficulty of how people work together in collaboration, um, but you're also, in a sense, you know, putting under pressure the the romantic ideal of the singular poet. Who-
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, if we can get that really early on. (laughs) But um, that part doesn't bother me. I mean, I think one of the things I'm trying to do, like with Dragon Logic, I don't mean to move too soon toward that or anything, but...
0: Oh, we'd love to talk about it.
1: um, Is that, um, well, there's two epigraphs. One is Paul and one is Richard Feynman, the physicist. And Feynman's epigraph is... um, Why do the poets not speak of it? And that was—he wrote that in a physics book, and he was talking about the physics of the twentieth and now twenty-first century. And most people today, I mean, they're not even thinking Newtonian physics; they think Archimedean physics, you know, Aristotelian physics. We really don't grasp in our metaphors and in our daily language what it means to live with, uh, well, to live with the reach to the edge of the cosmos, to live with the reach down into the nano, to live in a world that entire electronic electric world driven by quantum mechanics, and our entire sense of cosmic driven by relativity. And I to speak of that, to speak of the quantum world, will say to you that... The correlation is real, but the two things they correlate are not. So reality and matter come into being as materialized relationships. So the idea of a singular pre-existing anything, thing, time, space, person, poet, whatever, that is incorrect. We are incredibly entangled beyond that, and what we are comes into being at each moment and needs to be reenacted at each moment as a materialization of, of relationships. and and our, our ecological understanding, you know, um, maps onto that pretty well, right? What we've failed to see is the extensive layered interconnection of all these things that we thought we could treat separately and divide up in a kind of binaryaristic way. And, I think that kind of thinking, it's gotten us into trouble, ethical trouble and other, but I don't think we're going to survive the presenting crises of the 21st and later centuries if our thinking can't better encompass the fact that we are globally connected in these relations that we need to make space for, and make space for the people that don't have the power to name the relations, to hear them also, and...
0: Let them respond. I think that there is no better introduction to the book than what you just gave because you, you launch into that very material. Um, you know, the other epigram is by Ceylon and it's there are songs to sing beyond the human. Um, yeah. You know, and the book takes that charge of the network. So I, I have to ask at the beginning your, your book title is one of the best titles I've come across. So, what is dragon logic?
1: Yeah, what are dragons, right? Yes. <laughs> well, um, you know, one point in the book, um, I quote Stan um, you know, everyone knows that dragons don't exist, right? Um, and he's he, um, what he's actually saying is that they,
0: well, let me see if I can just find that little bit. It's right at the very center of the book. It's the pivot point.
1: Yes. Do you know the page? Have you got that?
0: I sure do. It's page 49. Page 49. Okay. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, he says, everyone knows that dragons don't exist, but while this simplistic formulation may satisfy the layman, it does not suffice for the scientific mind. Cerebron, attacking the problem analytically, discovered three distinct kinds of dragon, the mythical, the chimerical, and the purely hypothetical. They were all, one might say, non-existent, but each non existed in an entirely different way. And then he goes on to say that, um, that if you try to attach the dragon in real space, you will find that it has slipped from real to configurational space, and configurational space is electronically generated space. And I think each of those kinds of dragons, dragons are abstract and they're powerful. And they, to me, they represent the power of abstraction, but there are those three kinds, and there are, it is addressed in the book mythically purely hypothetical is what I would consider to be the parts of the book that I call "Dragon Maps," which are talking about code and numbers and physics and the abstract systems that we have um, made in in theoretical physics, or where we equate number theory with theoretical physics. That whole, you know, incredible overflowing of power of abstraction. But in the most part of the book, I think um, I. I think the line I follow is the chimera line, but, um, where and, and this is a, it's where things maintain some of the qualities that they had before they're fused, but they but they are fused, and yet they confront us in a kind of uh, well, it, it's sort of a tipping point where signs start to lose their ability to communicate and we have to recalibrate our senses to continue to receive them. And I think that is what we're being asked to do, that things that we thought were separate actually are being very much um, fused. And the main struggle of well, many engineering kind of people, coding kind of people, people like Stellar, um, the main rival to life is aliveness engineered aliveness and a very the intimacy of interface between uh a huge flash code metal and we're forced into this by our devices our we the devices become augmentations of ourselves so we know people don't move around i don't own a cell phone but everyone i know moves around with it in their hand they don't won't put it down um and we're and we're accelerated by the speed of these devices, and we're being asked to manage huge amounts of virtual data, which are sort of beyond our just bio bodies' capability. So I mean, on beyond Google Glass, there's the people want, uh, you know, a contact lens with all that information in that. It's not, you know, it's a real challenge to everything we've understood about what human beings are, and I think I. There's a lot of that in the books. There's a lot of the, there's the inorganic anemone. There's the man-sea creature, you know, trying to ride the waves. And I think that that's that's one place where the dragons are. Each of the sections has their own kind of dragon, you might say. Um,
0: we have e dragons and sea dragons and yeah. hungry dragons
1: right and i think the e the crushing forces of computation are in the e dragons thing and the sea dragons are kind of overwhelming inundation <laughs> in water in particular using water but also a lot of the time space kind of physics is there and floods and so on and uh, the um hunger dragon is kind of the ecocide technician corporation capital
0: kind of dragon well i think there's a moment in the in the uh boston review where a few of these poems appeared where you describe your book as eco-poetry yeah Uh, and and i think you have a different idea of what eco-poetry would be from perhaps our default understanding of that would you mind expanding on that because i think it's a fascinating idea
1: yeah i think that mostly we have well i mean i think probably the most controversial thing i say is like um Nature is Disney. <laughs> um, I think that the earth, the earth, and all of our interrelationships are threatened. I mean, in this the book, we have the sea on fire. We have the dolphins reshaping the coasts. We have zombies. We have deer carcasses blinding drivers. Pan is dead. Um, the whole idea that we are incredibly entangled, which I think most eco poetry would sign up for. I think what they don't necessarily sign up for is that um, we are. Uh, we are technological, and we, and whatever is called nature at the moment, co-evolve. And so there is no, like, one place or habitat for human beings. Human beings have invaded the most invasive species, the most wild species on Earth is the human. We've invaded every single corner of it. And what we are now calling wild is these regulated, radio collared wilderness things that are set aside and regulated to such a degree that they could—I mean—they could be the court of our side, right? You know, I mean, we inoculate the animals and we count them and we put microchips in them and so on. And so we have a very strange sum. Not everyone; a lot of people do have understanding that the well we're all in this together. We're all creatures who are modifying each other's behavior at every point. And we need to just step up and say, What what steps are we taking? What have we done that we are now we and the other invasive species, the Norway rats, the kudzu, the whatever, are taking charge, right? Of the earth. So but this happens at the economic levels, happens at every level and we're not counting the costs. We're not having, you know, people without jobs are not treated like war heroes, which is what you're supposed to do when you ask a certain group of people to sacrifice on behalf of everyone else, right? Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) anyway, I think that that um, that kind of understanding is maybe not... What people think of, and I think that the, the as well the other there's another sort of part of this book which is not only are we looking at what does it mean to be human, what is a person, what's a post person, what's an augmented body, and all that, but in particular, what's the role of women? Because that's another part where, for a long time, women were not treated as people, certainly not as intellectual
0: contributors. Right? Yes, I think it's it's another moral impulse that's at the heart of the book.
1: Yeah and I think that this whole idea of what is an the ecology the ecology and what's being what dies or thrives will include uh inanimate objects we have to respect inanimate things like water but also we need to respect the machines we cannot do it anymore without them it's become at a level of complexity and computation and we need to understand all the people that weren't heard before including many women Uh, Or only heard in sort of mythic forms, right? But also including the people that are completely cut out, the Bartleby, the person who prefers not to, the people, you know, people who want to, who just don't have the power to enunciate things. And other people speak up for them and tell them what's good for them and what the consensus should be and so on. And I didn't, you know, when I was writing it, I didn't have, when I was writing the poems, the poems were very, um, they just, I wrote it in a very strange way. I sat down and I would write, something one morning, and then I would type it up, and I would put it away, and then I'd start all over again the next day, and I did that for many, many months, and I never went back and looked at the beginning till I had felt I'd come to the end of it, and at that point, the book was called Hurricane's Harp, and Hurricane is a, was a um, South American Central American, Latin American uh, kind of deity that um, non-European, and I think you know Katrina had happened. There was this sense of that hurricane-like storms are sweeping the planet, and and these were the harp strings on which we ha- our lives are being woven now, much wilder, much crazier, much more catastrophic than um, you know old European kind of ideas of you know of our what our world was like. And um, so when I, when I... when Then I went through and I, the poems, you know, I, I they were mysterious to me, and I put them together, you know, it took a long time. And only after they really were pretty much a manuscript did I come to read people like Isabel Stengers and Karen Barad and some feminist science studies things, and they made so much sense to me. I mean, I understood them because of the poems, do you know what I mean? But I, it's a like reverse, right? I mean, I, I, I can't, like, read stuff and write poems to spec or something, you know?
0: Right, through the so, poetry you find a kindred spirit having them,
1: yes, like. exactly. It's like, oh, yes, that makes huge sense for you to talk that way about it. I mean, I can only sort of gesture toward it, or this is the way it made me want to change my language, or this is the way I needed to layer things, or, you know, this is the way I had to say it. I'm not sure why, I just knew that was the way it had to be, but then when I go and um, uh, other guys, Belanda and Sean Cubit and I mean, a lot of people, and I'm like, yes, what you're talking about, that's what I'm talking about, too, but I talked about it in a different way, not a systematic way, right? But anyway, that was, that was a great pleasure to me, though, to go and, and see that there was there's a kind of a wide feeling widespread feeling about needing to understand these things and redoing some of our behaviors on the basis of a different kind of understanding and and i would argue it it, it, it is an ecology you know it is a very full view of our
0: interrelations i think my experience of the books the book's poems works very similarly uh, you know there's a time-honored tradition of of poetry as an act of communication with a, you know, kind of definable thesis. Um, and yours, it, it strikes me very much as an encounter and an experience, uh, one that asks you to bring a lot of yourself into the, the, uh, the matrix that the poems are creating. Um, and the result is, is something that's, that's much different. I think than somebody who's used to the Norton anthology, there's, there's a kind of, um, I, I almost want to liken the experience of reading the poems to the way that you were talking about uh engaging with our, our various devices and technologies that the, mm-hmm. the poem is quite actively giving you as a reader a space to encounter and engage with them um does that make sense or does that
1: seem- Yeah, no, I think and I think that it for me it's like the the poems are enacting something they're not representing anything.
0: That's right.
1: You know, so um and and that is kind of the job I think language has to do, and that is what happens with code. When language has to interact with code, and um, and gesturally, and across the globe, where you cannot just be imposing English or imposing this or imposing, right? I mean, how is it going to operate? The difference between this very specific language history that anybody. Has is their native language, and that applies and has all, takes all its meaning from the specific place where it was and the specific history under which it arose, right? and the fact that you need to work with and communicate with and uh, elaborate values for really, the entire world. What matters now is the water, the air, the you know these things that are not, they're not national, they're not local, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, it's not the weather that's giving us the problem. it's the climate. And you don't see climate climate you can only that's an abstraction you can only see it on a computational simulation device right, but that's what we need to work with that's what we need to understand. It's not enough just to know that on this shore or whatever the this is the when the tsunamis come or whatever I mean that knowledge we've managed to interact with the planet to such an extent that we've disrupted that knowledge. And the disruptions are global, and we need to have ways to talk to each other globally, and those are going to be uh, mediated by the machines. But if that's so, we better really know everything inside and outside about these machines of what they can do and what they can't do.
0: Yes, and you need a a poetry of the machine and the human, of the real and the virtual.
1: Yeah, that's what I think.
0: (laughs) Well, I would love it if you would be willing to read one.
1: Yeah, sure. I when I usually when I start um, to read, I talk about um, Richard Feynman's uh, lecture, and I and and I say he's saying why do the poets not speak of it? And he's talking about these crazy physics that are in our electronic gadgets. We're happy to have them there, but we don't want to really. They're not in our common language. It's not the physics is not represented in our common language at all. And so I do have a I, I have a poem called um averted the dragon, and, and it was uh, in an uh, online magazine called The Mad Hatter, and a wonderful guy called X8 made this really scary picture of the dragon at the Hill street at <laughs> and so I kind of show people this picture, and I say, "Now this is the dragon, the partition space-time, but I'm going to skip that, and I'm going to go straight to quantum mechanics, which is really about the strangeness of touch, and I think that is something we do need to think about. And I tell them that if I hold a coffee mug, the feeling of contact comes from repulsion between the electrons in my fingers and those in the mug, because electrons cannot bear direct contact. And then I read them the two dragons' poems. But then I say, and this is true, most of these poems don't have caption titles. The potential titles are internal, which is, again, has relation to quantum mechanics. And I say... In the first poem, or the internal title for the poem I want to read to you first is Was the RCA Dog Fooled? And RCA sold um, their early photogra- phonographs, those big bell phonograph, cylinder phonograph. Yes, some of us are
0: immediately thinking of that picture, that famous
1: You know what it is, yeah, Uh, and it's little dog Nipper and his head is cocked, you know, and he's listening to quotes, his master's voice, right? But it turned out that actually naive humans, when radio was just new, radio is a touch technology, right? The uh, sound is a touch technology. Uh, What they most... When they had this first idea of voices coming out of the air, what they wanted most of all was to hear their dead relatives.
0: I did not know that. Yeah.
1: The radio hope, access to the dead, access to the light fuzz that lived in crystal sets, slipping feet, tripping wings in vacuum tube towers. In the Hendrix amplifier, from the back, cities of snub-nosed glass open to view. In old radios was the RCA dog fooled as fully as I was. People in the radio. All I meant by people in the radio. Too delicate, too breakable for my harsh moves too wrapped in an upswept case with a dial face, intermittent as clouds, static music, too apt to erupt or be unplugged, too innerly unreachable by my clumsy moth.
0: Well, I want to say that that is both powerful and beautiful, is beauty something that operates in your aesthetic? I love beauty. Yeah, beauty's good.
1: <laughs> it looks so different to different people, though. You know, you could get into
0: trouble. <laughs> That's certainly true. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you so much for reading that.
1: I'm happy. I like to read it. <laughs> and I like people to know that the, uh, later on in the book, I talk about radio cities and, and trying to seek a community, right? Radio does go around the world, right? I mean... One of the first things, and um, but again, the language issue is something we need to deal with and understand how we're going to communicate.
0: Hmm. Well, given that you've you've thought through some of these problems in in Dragon Logic, it's probably mm-hmm. worth noting for for listeners that the the Book of Poems does end. Um, with unsolved problems, yeah. <laughs> which beckons towards future work. Could you tell me, would you mind sharing perhaps a little bit of what, what you're thinking about now or what project you're working on at the moment?
1: Um, well, right at the moment, we're um, doing a, the book uh, that I did called V-Wave Sonnets Losing Luna, um, which was, had an online uh, section, actually two online sections, called the v Universe, and that was made in software called uh, Shockwave, uh, which was Adobe, Macromedia, sold it to Adobe, and Apple deciding not to support Flash and Shockwave means that that software is not getting updated anymore. And though you still can see the universe, it gets harder and harder to do it. So we are uh, reissuing a new edition of, uh, it's now V-Wave Persics, losing on um, always in the universe, you could go back and forth between these sonnets and tercets, but it's going to be for a tablet. We're redoing the app for a tablet, and so um, that's what I'm working on now—is how to uh, redo. It, and it's amazing how different it is. To, it's what I call loss of hover. <laughs> All these gestures had a certain meaning in the universe and are no longer possible on a on the tablet. So there's a lot of translation that has to go on at that level. And I do think this whole translation issue, um, the the and bar generator is being translated into Polish, I mean, it has been translated into Polish, and it's also been used to mash up uh, Walt Whitman and Daniewski's, uh novel. And so now it's called House of Leaves of Grass. Mark Sample did that. So this idea of different ways of um, translating things, I think puts... in incredible beautiful pressure actually on natural language I've never learned more about the real sort of details of natural language um, than when I've been involved in these translation projects because you see exactly why you can and can't do this in polish you have to change the code and you have to accommodate the exact language in question and the the translation now between different forms of hardware different kind different kind of devices right so I it's exhausting I you know I've Sometimes I just wish, but I just want to go on and do, I do want to go on and do another book. I have all these, I do have this more quantum stuff and having been introduced to Stingers and Barad and all that, you know, I mean, it makes a whole lot, lot of space I'd love to go investigate. But there is this tension, you know, between, um, working on electronic work and the print. And the electronic work requires updating and changing in a way that's completely different. So my reactions to that and, and, and the things of the, Functionalities that I sort of feel I'm losing, and that I had, you know, now I have to change. So I have to sort of see how I feel about all that.
0: (laughs) Well, I think uh, you know, one of the ways I often will think about um, poetry is, you know, are there poets out there that that find the biggest challenges of our moment to be to be. Insights and inspirations and, uh, and, or, or are they defeating, you know? And I think there, you, you read so much about, oh no, we're losing the book. Oh no, we have to go digital. Oh no. Um, so there's this, there's this characteristic of lament. And then there are those poets who think these are the very things we have to think through, these problems and these questions. And, uh, you are foremost in my mind when I think about poets who are ready to challenge.
1: Well, okay. I've been challenging in concert. I mean, it, I've never had more appreciation for doing the digital. Gave me huge appreciation for for just spoken, spoken language, oral language, and face to face communication and reading and you know so I I, I do think they can live together
0: we might see something in the future where your voice shows up
1: (laughs) (laughs) who knows who knows
0: (laughs) Uh, well Stephanie Strickland thank you so much for your time today
1: thank you Eric it was lovely to talk to you
0: my name is Eric LeMay and you've been listening to an interview with Stephanie Strickland on the New Books Network